1: Welcome back. We have been talking about a new policy from the government announced yesterday by July 1st all long-term care homes will have to have a vaccine policy in place and it will require staff to either show proof of being fully vaccinated to show a doctor's note about why they can't be vaccinated or partake in an education program explaining the benefits of getting the the vaccine and the risks of not getting it and uh, some Samantha Peck with the family councils, you know, what kind of tangible change are you expecting or hoping for because of this?
2: So what I would hope for out of this is that more staff are fully vaccinated. I I really um, agree with what Dora said about meeting people where they're at and understanding where they're coming in terms of marginalized communities that have faced real harm at the hands of the medical system. So I would hope that trust is built between home administrators or de- further developed between home administrators and uh, staff so that they do go and get vaccinated. And then what I would hope based on that is that we see typically fewer outbreaks, that we see that homes don't need to have residents isolated because of an outbreak among staff and that more broadly, that communities as a whole, because you know, home staff go back in the communities with their families, that communities are kept safer as well. So starting with trust, and then reducing home level outbreaks, increasing resident quality of life, more visitors coming in, general visitors I mean, and then community as a whole being safer.
1: Jane I'd like to get back to this question of of the, you know the rights of the residents versus the rights of the workers and and those cases I keep hearing from people whose loved ones are isolated even though they're fully vaccinated mm-hmm.
3: yeah and i mean this whole you know this whole business of of you know this ongoing detention of people and and you know where now they're the full, people are fully vaccinated this is a, an ongoing problem and in trying to you know support those the rights of one group against another is always tricky. Um, but as you said, there are choices that have been made in other places around, you know, certainly on the issue of vaccines in schools, for example, um, where the, you know, the society as a whole, um, kind of has, has, you know, come out ahead um, of the individual. And I think that, um, you know, those are obviously government policies. Um, And I expect that as we move forward, there are going to people who are going to litigate that. They are going to say, I am not happy with the fact that you're saying that I must take a vaccine and and we'll see what happens. But I totally agree. I think that, that many of the people who aren't vaccinated aren't not vaccinated because they're against vaccines. They're not vaccinated because they either don't understand, they're afraid, um they, um, uh, you know, may not have the right information in the right way. And also, uh, as Doris pointed out, they haven't made it easy. They haven't made it easy for, you know, hardly anyone. Um, except, frankly, for, you know, in the long-term care residents were probably the easiest because they came into the homes, right? And we really have to do that for the staff. They, You can't expect someone who's, um, you know, marginalized, got low income, um, to be traveling and going and waiting. And it, that just makes no sense. Um, you know, standing in big, long lineups, we need to make sure that the uh, its access is proper and that the communication is proper. And I think we will get most people vaccinated.
1: Uh Doris, uh, again, you know, um, what should be done to avoid, again, the detention of people in isolation?
4: So I go to the same that I said before, bring the vaccines to the homes, have the staff, the nurses in the home, deliver the vaccine, uh, start where the worker is, and you will get fantastic, fantastic updates. This is all about how the process will lead to better outcomes, not to create residents versus staff. This is residents and staff for the sake of everybody's health and our community's health. And it's doable. It has been done with indigenous communities beautifully. The government did it. This government, Ontario, did it with indigenous communities by doing the right process. They can do it here. They need to reverse track of what's happening in nursing homes. These are the residents and the workers together that were let down. These are the workers that didn't get PPE first. You know, when you talk now about the new chief medical officer of health, Dr. Moore, by the way, look at this region. Not a single death in nursing home because he gave PPE first. That's what needed to happen to this province. So we let down here, not only the residents, we let down horrifically, the residents, the families and the workers. This time, let's get it right and let's use them as an example for the rest.
1: I can't help but wonder, again, when I look at the long list of vaccines required by teachers, and it's not controversial, and this, I mean, uh, I have to think that there is ageism at play here, at least to a certain extent, Samantha?
2: I think that's possible as a society we tend to value children over older adults and that has really that has implications for societies and communities and this is a good example where you know, PSWs aren't you know generally paid very well they aren't respected within society and this I can definitely see as being part and parcel of the the lack of respect for older adults uh, societally, and the lack of respect for those who choose to go into careers to care for them, who do very difficult jobs day in and day out. But it's because, and I firmly believe this, they're doing it out of a place of love and because they care for the people that they work with. But yes, ageism is a real problem in the long term care sector.
3: Jane, ageism? Absolutely. You know. I mean, you know, you can see it from, you know, that's been throughout um, every stage, you know, we've it, the 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 long term care sector gets the short end of the stick, um, you know whether it was at the beginning with no PPE, you know where they were protecting the hospitals, uh, this way where they were you know turfing people out of the hospitals into long term care homes that may not have been ready to take care of them, um, detaining people illegally. Um, versus the rest of the society where they used orders, they used a directive that aren't appealable, um, and have illegally detained people throughout. So, I mean, again, it's just another example perhaps of this ageism and how we treat the elderly very, very differently, whether it be in the healthcare system or the legal system or wherever. Um, and it has to change, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we don't want to put up these barriers to say it's an us versus them. I think we all want to work together and to ensure that the staff um, or whoever's coming into the home uh, really are providing good quality care, that they're being taken care of as workers um, and protecting themselves. I mean, this isn't just about protecting the home, it's protecting themselves. But you're right, it does have huge implications on residents who are. Um, you know who are are vaccinated and and shouldn't have to be stuck in a home every time someone who ha- isn't vaccinated um you know comes down with with covid and it's 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 a serious problem it has to be fixed because the mental um you know the the what's happening to residents and their mental um, status and their depression um, is huge. And we're losing people because of that. So this isn't just a, you know, well, you know, when you're not going to get COVID there's other implications as well.
1: Yeah. We, we've been talking about them throughout the whole pandemic. Doris, the government has made moves. They're hiring more PSWs. They've put some money towards it. Uh, PSWs are going to, ha- there are going to be some professional standards. Uh, how do you see that?
4: So uh, let me tell you first that I am one of the members by request of the government on the Human Resources Acceleration Committee. There is a difference between announcement and happening. Nothing has happened. Okay, so let's be clear on that. You are talking ageism, hundred percent ageism in everything that is being done in long term care. Period. Long term care has been the hardest hit. Still to this day in Canada and in Ontario in particular, the great proportion of death toll during COVID was in nursing homes. If that's not a whistle, you tell me what it is. And the second worst was racialized communities that come from multi-generational families, which are the people, by the way, that work in the nursing homes, in warehouses, etc. I would plead to you and every other reporter and to the government to not make it. And I am not representing PSWs, but I know what PSWs their situation. Do not make it they and us. They are going to work because they love their work. No one would do the work of PSWs or nurses in long-term care if they didn't respect and appreciate that work. You can make more money somewhere else. So they do it because they want to do a good job. Let's make sure that we bring the human resources they we are promising to actually for them to be able to do the work. Let's make sure that they get the supports on education. Let's make sure that we do bridging programs from PSW to RPN, PSW to RN. I have one now that is going to Ryerson. You know, let's make their life better for them to also give back to the residents more and more and more. And within that is the same issue on the vaccine. Let's understand their realities. Let's make it easy for them to get the vaccine. Bring it outside. Start where they are. Make sure the staff from the home gives the vaccine, and we are going to have a much, much better outcome.
1: Okay, we are uh, just about out of time, so uh, I'll give Jane and Samantha each twenty seconds. Jane, um, I I really just hope that you know the government moves forward with um,
3: you know ensuring that everyone who goes into long term care, whether they be these staff. Um, the essential workers at the moment uh, or the essential caregivers um, or public health and um, inspectors also, that they're ensuring that they're all doing their best to get them all vaccinated and not just um, people who are uh, working in those homes. Um, And they have to make it easy and they have to ensure that residents who are being admitted to homes are getting vaccinated. We can't leave them behind. And we're certainly hearing that some people are having trouble accessing them as well.
2: Samantha. Families want their loved ones' uh, care providers to be vaccinated. Families have jumped at the chance to get vaccinated. They trust the system. This can be done. Um, And homes out there who are listening, ask your families and your family councils to provide you with feedback to help implement this policy at the home level. Because not only are families champions for change by providing their lived and living experiences as caregivers but also from their professional volunteer lives, they can help you make this work. Rely on your families, trust them, engage them, and you'll have more success.
1: Okay, that's all the time we have. I'm sure we'll be revisiting this and uh, seeing how it works. Thank you so much, Doris Greenspoon, Jane Medes, and Samantha Peck. Appreciate your time.
4: Thank you, Libby. Thank you. Thank you.
1: And thank you, colleagues. Bye. Okay. Uh, Again, okay. That's all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. The province has announced that all long-term care homes must have COVID-19 vaccination policies in place by July 1st, and they are all staff will have to either show proof of being fully vaccinated, provide documentation of medical reasons for not getting vaccinated, or partake in an education program explaining the benefits of getting the vaccine, and the risks of not getting it. Now, right now, apparently, none of that is mandatory unless people want to work in more than one home. So the question is, will this be enough? And will this be effective enough to bring change in the absence of a mandatory vaccination policy? And what do you think? I know that we have been hearing from people whose loved ones in long-term care end up in isolation after being fully vaccinated because there are outbreaks among unvaccinated staff. 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 740. And now let's go to Samantha Peck, who is the Executive Director of Family Councils Ontario. Jane Meadis, staff lawyer and institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly and Doris Greenspoon CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Welcome and thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, thanks for having us, Vivi. Okay, Thank let us you. let us begin with Samantha. So you represent the families. How do you see this?
2: Uh, so thanks for this opportunity. So the way I see it is based on what I've heard from families, knowing that COVID has devastated long-term care. Families have lived through and continue to live through the febust and trauma of COVID-19. And they've jumped at the chance to get vaccinated. And now those caregivers are asking, why hasn't my mom's PSW been vaccinated? Or how do I know that the nurse caring for my husband has gotten his vaccines? And how do we as families ensure that all of the people working with my loved one are vaccinated? So I think this is a first, uh, good step. I've heard from homes that have done this fantastically where they've been working with their, their staff teams on access to vaccination on education and peer support. I'm not sure that it's enough uh, yet, but I do know that there are homes that have done this really well already. Uh,
1: yeah, that's, I, I mean, I had been wondering, Jane, how this was different, because I know that there are homes that have done this informally, but mm-hmm. uh, apparently there is uh, a, an advantage, legal and otherwise, to making it formal. How do you see it?
3: Well, I mean, certainly there, I think anything that can assist. I think that, um, you know, requiring vaccinations just overall is is difficult. It is a medical um, procedure, so you need consent. Um, we do have other, you know, vaccines, though, that are required, for example, in schools. So I think that, you know, doing it in the way that they're doing now, um, may, you know, certainly is something that I'm hoping will um, increase the number of vaccines um, among staff. And, and again, as Sam said, you know, some homes have done it very well. And I think it's that communication piece that they have uh, been able to speak to the staff, um, have ensured that they get to vaccines, that they're not losing uh, money if they're going. Um, All of those things are going to to really help. Um, I'm a little confused as to why the government is downloading the, um, the training portion to the homes. It seems to me that it would make much more sense for the, the the ministry to put together what they say is an appropriate, you know, training and, and, uh, or information session um, instead of having to get every home and every system to create their own. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to
1: me at a time when we're low on staff. Uh, uh, apparently, this is based on a program from Sunnybrook that's been very successful, so maybe... You can get it from Sunnybrook. Uh, Doris, how do you see it? Uh, I think that uh, the
4: move is an excellent move. I think that the programs need to be localized, cannot be uh, a cookie cutter approach. Uh, the best way we know, based on best practices, uh, for people to uh, get vaccines is if you bring the vaccines to their workplaces. Let's remember that many of these workers. Are workers that uh, come from compromised communities, from uh, complex life situations, from previous histories um, uh, of of mistrust, including mistrust uh, that we need to understand, and hence why you, when you bring the vaccine to the home and it's given by the staff in the home, the uptake will be significantly, significantly better. And when you look at the homes that have done well, usually it's because the workers didn't need to travel for an hour or two sometimes and be on a lineup and not being paid for that. But the vaccine was brought in many instances to the home. Uh, They had champions in the home. Uh, Sometimes the nurses that work in the home gave the vaccines and that's when it worked best.
1: Uh, You know, Jane, you mentioned uh, that uh, vaccines are required in schools, and I am looking at a list of nine, nine vaccines that are required for teachers. So I'm shaking my head and wondering why aren't these vaccines required for workers at long-term care?
3: Well, I mean, that's, uh, that's obviously a policy, you know, decision by the government. I don't know. Um, it's something I think that moving forward, I guess, depending on what the uptake is, I think they're trying to do it so that people will want to get vaccinated and will you know, go through with that. And, and you know, certainly we might see uh, something like that in the future. Um, uh, you know, I, I have a couple of concerns, uh, you know, coming out of this is, you know, one is that, um, while uh, this would include doctors, nurses, agency staff, etc., it doesn't include things like public health and inspectors going into long-term care. There's no requirement for them to be um, vaccinated. And, and, you know, that's one of the things that I'm concerned about. Um, and I'm also concerned about people who may have uh, refused to have it uh, have vaccines um, because they don't believe in them or something, and that always really concerns me because I think that those you know people are less likely to follow protocols when they're out of the home, and that's that's a really huge concern. So I think at the end we may we may end up seeing if there's not enough uptake um, something more like that.
1: Well, yeah, and uh, Samantha, I mean, my understanding is that it would be legal to require new hires at least. To have this,
2: so that um, I'm not I'm not a lawyer, so Jane may be more able to say this. But this is what I am hearing from homes and from different sectors across the province. I'm also involved in an arts and, an arts organization. We're having the same conversation as well. Is ha- what can we do with staff who are currently working for an organization that is public facing, particularly or working with people with complex health issues. Um, and then what do we do with bringing on new folks? Uh, so I leave that, the legal question, to uh, to my lawyer friends. But I, it is something that I know families are asking about, too, because they want to know how do we keep our loved ones and our
1: staff safe? Uh, Doris, I mean, you know, you you mentioned that a lot of the workers in homes come from difficult backgrounds. But, you know, when I look at it, I see the right of the worker on the one hand, and what about the right of a resident who's probably towards the end of their life and and ends up not being able to leave the room?
4: Yeah, uh, please don't interpret wrongly what I said. Uh, I didn't say that workers don't need to be vaccinated. What I did say is that we need to understand the situations of the workers so that we actually modify our approach in terms of bringing the vaccine to them, understanding their history so we can engage in a conversation. That's what takes away vaccine hesitancy, not to push it. To push it, what it does is that worker will go somewhere else. And the reality is when you look at the success that we had, with our indigenous communities, ninety percent of them got vaccinated, ninety-five in fact, is because we had the right approach. So here we can do the same and we can make a gain out of it, not only for COVID, but for the flu vaccine and for others. We need to learn to work with PSWs, understand their histories and Not to say, oh, you go and get the vaccine in whatever clinic when we don't pay the time for them to go and they have the parents in the home, the children in the home, and they really are struggling with minimum wage almost. You know what I mean? This is what I'm saying. We can, we can, it needs to be an approach that we make it easier for people to decrease their vaccine hesitancy that is not, is different than anti-vaxxers. That's few in between. I'm talking about vaccine hesitancy and that has to do with things that have been done to the Black community in past history, things that have been done to the Indigenous communities. That's from where the vaccine hesitancy comes and we better start to understand it in the context of what happened now with children and the grades that we have found. We just need to learn to work with everybody in in a much more uh, two-way street and we will see
1: you chat. You chat. Well, certainly I uh, hope so. Right now we have to take a quick break. We're going to have more on this and as I said I would like to hear from people who are either in or have loved ones in long-term care. What do you make of this new policy? Uh does it make you feel more comfortable? 416 360 toll-free 866 740 and we will be right back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy Panel. And the Ford government is shifting into election mode. This, according to published reports, quoting unnamed advisors who say a cabinet shuffle is. Very likely, backroom maestro Corey tonight has left his lobbying job to run the campaign for Ford. And meanwhile, the finger pointing between Queen's Park and Ottawa continues. We should also look to federal reaction to the the discovery of the unmarked mass grave of 215 Indigenous residential school children. Also, the Quebec Premier's bid to change language laws in a way that would require a change in the Constitution. Uh, that is something uh that seems to be happening under the radar, and we should talk about it. So, uh, the numbers call 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 740 Joining me, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco. Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Flesh Pillared High Road and Charles Sousa, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and Member of Parliament for Mississauga South. That's Provincial Parliament. And so let's start with Queen's Park. Charles, hi. Hi there. Good afternoon. So, uh, any surprises or anything that, uh, sticks out to you about these reports about an upcoming cabinet shuffle to get ready for the election?
5: You know, I, there's a saying that those that uh, uh, speak about the shuffle are the ones that don't know. You know? Oh, <laughs> so yes. you never know how this is going to play out. But it's understandable that the Premier is trying to reset and uh, rejuvenate and, and provide some more diversity, bolster some of those ridings that may not be as highly representative, especially those that are not as safe as some of the others, uh, where some ministers now ride or, or, or are in, in, uh, in positions. It's a rural-urban split that continues to exist, and um, I'm not surprised. This does, have to ha- this does tend to happen as the election time comes, but he's gonna be- the biggest challenge for him is he's no longer running on the record of others. He's no longer running and pointing fingers and, and suggesting how bad somebody is, and that's why you should vote for me. He- he's going to be running on his record, and at times it's not been pretty. It's been a roller coaster ride for him. He's done some good things in respect to some of the developers that he's had, but he's also made some glaring issues that have cost the province a lot of money, be it with Hydro One or be it the fight, the partisan fight with the, with the feds on carbon tax. These things weren't necessary. Um, and he was best at, when he was conciliatory in a cooperative uh, approach, he was actually sort of an anti-Trump in some of that respect. But given who he's bringing in, looks like he's uh, getting ready for negative ads and being more aggressive and up for a fight. And uh, but to do that, he needs to have some some new faces in cabinet. Uh,
1: yeah, and John. Uh, now, according to this report, and again, it's on anonymous sources. Uh, he's thinking that the cabinet is too male and too white. Really, he's thinking that.
6: Right, well, he could be uh and it's and it's probably <laughs> something that he's looking at as a as 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 he's looking at sort of you know how he's going to change things writ large i I'm not surprised that that they're talking about a cabinet shuffle in fact, we've mentioned it on this show a couple of times that that he's probably due for one and and Charles knows specifically because of you know obviously having been in cabinet that there's certain times within a term that that the premier and, and that you need a refresh and, and a relook, be it based on a policy changes or performance or, you know, gearing up to an election. And in this case, it's probably all of the above. Um, I think he needs to, there's some ministers that have just been worn out and tired as a result of the pandemic and working way over some of the others. Some performers have been better than others. Um, But, you know, the fact is that we're about a year, we're in fact a year away from an election campaign. Uh, The party has uh, put in place some full-time Campaign workers now. There's been an absolute shift in messaging, shift in and how things have been doing. So I would imagine the last uh, one of the last things that they would want to do is is in preparation for the election, is actually have a cabinet shuffle and have a refresh. So I'm not surprised by it. I don't you know I don't want to speculate on names and who's who because I think to Charles's point, people that know what I'm saying it, people that don't know will always speculate. Um, you know, but I think I think there'll be some that that will need to have changed and some will be brought in. Uh, to reflect a bit more of a a, a more refreshed cabinet.
1: Uh, Karen, so he obviously, well, according to this, wants Mm -hmm. more women. I was surprised to see in this report, in the star, Robert Benzie, uh, saying that Christine Elliott isn't sure if she's going to run again. That surprised me. And also, I was wondering about Marilee Fullerton. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I think... There's a bigger issue for
7: for Doug Ford, and I, I, you know, I, as I think the question is is starting to come back to people's minds, you know, who is Doug Ford and what does he stand for? And you know, to Charles's point, when he was elected, you know, it was a really, I, I think, in fairness, a response against the Liberal government that there was great desire for change in the province, and Doug Ford was the beneficiary of that. And then his approach out of the gate was um, w- was different. It was it was kind of aggressive, and it was. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was an approach that didn't resonate well with the public, I would say at large. And while tough decisions needed to get made, I I think that there was a sense that it was uh, uh, not fully thought through. And then the pandemic hit and, um, you know, Doug Ford shifted and he pivoted and he became, uh, you know, someone that people were able to resonate with once again. And so there was a question, well, who is the real Doug Ford? Was (laughs) it The guy who was just getting his feet wet, or is it is this the real Doug Ford? And then for a you know a while, people believed that the Doug Ford we had during the pandemic was the one that um, could be trusted. And then, then his approval ratings went up. And then I don't know what happened. Uh, John probably knows better than I. But you know, as somewhere along the line, maybe there was just you know too many voices at the table trying to influence decision making. But there was a sense that the government lost its way a little bit and didn't have clear messaging. Uh, decision making wasn't transparent. Uh, there was a lot of back and forth, uh, you know, remaking decisions that had been made. And and then there was, a you know, again, and the biggest issue was the, the communication was not clear um, at a time when there was for sure shifting targets, but, you know, at a time when when the public needed clear communication, it wasn't there. And so now we're left with, again, the question, you know, who is the real Doug Ford and what does he really represent for Ontario? And so this cabinet shuffle is, I think, a way for the premier to reset the agenda and begin to define who is the real Doug Ford moving into the next election. Because I think that although opinion might be down right now, I think it's still a blank slate for him. And if he can define it in a way that resonates with people, I think he still has a chance of, of of winning the next election. But, you know, I think he really has to do some of that soul searching about, you know, what does he stand for? Who is he? And what does he bring to the people of Ontario? Because, you know, I think, God hoping, God willing, the worst of the crisis is behind us with respect to COVID. But the rebuilding work is going to be just as hard. Uh,
1: yeah, it's uh, it's it's very interesting, and the polls show to the extent that you worry about polls a year out, his approval ratings are down, but so are the opposition leaders. So mm-hmm. you know, there's nobody clearly in a position to gain from all of this uh charles and and also charles uh about the woman question so you have christine elliott uh surprise to me maybe not running again according to this and uh you have uh Marilee fullerton the long-term care minister and and the this is where huge problems were mm-hmm. and just incidentally i i'm in the second half of the show I'm going to be dealing with these new COVID-19 vaccine rules for for nursing homes. But it's a kind of thing. It seems to be a pretty big announcement that there would be a a news conference and it was a statement and I think that they're keeping her under wraps, Charles.
5: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so I'm not certain what's going to happen with the both with the two of them. There are others that he that's mentioned in the article, uh some junior um our parliamentary assistants who uh, who are women who are said to have been performing better, so that may elevate. Uh, he has changed. With well, a medical officer, he's deflecting issues. He's he's brought in Michelle DeManuel, who's an excellent choice as a principal secretary of cabinet and the top uh, bureaucrat, and she's a powerful woman. I've worked closely with her. Uh, so what he may not have on the benches, he's bringing in elsewhere. Um, and so... Uh, my biggest, I think, the the parties, be it the conservatives or the liberals, the the real uh, uh, interesting uh, choice isn't who's going to be in cabinet. Who's going to replace Andrew Horvath? That's going to be the, the <laughs> a, a part of the, uh, the of the dilemma going out. Will she leave? Will there be a replacement? Will that be reenergized? And uh, I, I'm I'm actually more interested in what the NDP are going to do, relative <laughs> to what's going to happen next.
1: And what about the Liberals under Stephen Del Duca? Oh, done, say,
5: done. We've, got, we've got a very articulate individual. He's informed and he knows his stuff. He's got a wide degree of, of individuals, a good broad base of people that are brought in. And I'm encouraged by them, too. But politics is politics. All well, about perception. And the guy who's sitting in that seat is the one that people are paying attention to. And, um, you know, Stephen is fighting for airtime because he's not in the House but Andrew Horvath is listened to, and she does get the mic. Um, and she's not resonating. She hasn't. It's been it's been a, an issue. In fact, I would, as as a liberal, I would prefer to stay on, because people <laughs> want change. And uh, so, I'm hopeful that uh, that won't change. In that case. <laughs>
6: Karen, I, would, I would say I would say be careful what you wish for, Charles, because you know the fact of the matter is she still tops even in the polls, <laughs> um, and and I I would imagine uh, I would imagine that that's always an issue with respect to uh, you know and I think Angel Horvath, some leaders do do deserve second chances and, and do get one loss under their belt before they uh, before the party decides to. Uh, to review their uh, or, or to dispense of them. I think, Andrea, without a doubt, though, I think Libby, that if she loses this election, uh, there will be a leadership race for sure. She's uh- lost a few
5: times now, right? Yeah.
1: I just have uh, this just in and uh, nothing that we aren't expecting but the National Advisory Committee on Immunization says people who got the AstraZeneca vaccine for the first dose can be offered either Pfizer or Pfizer or Moderna for the second uh the advice affects more than 2 million Canadians um and of course you can also have the second dose of AstraZeneca which is what I'm planning to do unless there's a supply issue. Uh, so um, this just to end, you know, speaking of bad communication, I think uh, this group tops, takes the top spot in worst communication ever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well,
7: and I loved it. I was I was at this group who said, oh, yeah, by the way, that the expiry date on the AstraZeneca vaccine, don't worry about that. That's fine. It can get extended for another month.
1: Well, uh, and they didn't explain it. Uh, You know, yesterday, I talked to uh, uh, one of our uh, very frequent contributors, uh, John Puppesturgio, who's a a pharmacist and and a professor. And uh, he explained the thinking behind that. But to release that information, you know we, not the manufacturer, is extending the date uh, uh, without explaining the thinking behind it. I mean that is just right. another big fail, right. and of course, they did perform stability tests, and this is not something that is uh, unusual or new for drugs, and the other part of it is in terms of e- efficacy. you know we know with other drugs they don 't magically go bad on the expiration date; they do start to lose efficacy, and I'm not sure how much difference a few weeks makes, but again, releasing that without explaining it, uh, wow. Yeah, that, that's the issue, I think.
7: And so for the public, who, um, unfortunately, I think they discredited themselves quite in, 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 in a significant manner uh, for in a number of ways about, you know, the back and forth on the AstraZeneca, who should take it, when they should take it. You know, and then to have one of the spokespeople come out and say that you should choose your vaccine and not take AstraZeneca because I wouldn't let my sister do it. However, you know, that was completely damaging to that organization. And so now to come out with this information, it it, again, it it just doesn't have the same credibility that it should. And it does leave the public scratching their heads wondering, okay, well, what is it going to be next week? Are you going to change your mind after I get the Moderna when I've had the AstraZeneca shot first? Because there's the as they say the credibility is just not there.
1: Right. Now uh, I'm just reading down on this. So the if you have a piece of mRNA it says you should be offered the same one as a second dose unless it's not readily available and then you can mix them. Mm-hmm. Um so I mean it's it's kind of all over the map. I'm not seeing whether they recommend that you should take a different one. You know, we've heard from one of the uh, one, one of the discoverers of the vaccine who said you know really uh, take the same uh, sh- take the same shot in terms of AstraZeneca and we've seen it in Britain these blood clots are very rare and much rarer when in terms of a second dose as opposed to a first mm-hmm. but uh, again the communication first of all this isn't unexpected and again I don't know. I don't. I don't wait for NASI to tell me anything. I look to other sources, quite frankly.
6: Well, and, and that's, what the pro, that's the problem. That's the problem. Would be there seems to be a crisis of confidence now, and, and you know, when an organization like NASI, which is which is really the, the overall overseeing body nationally, that's supposed to be giving advice, and it's supposed to be uh, advice that, that's, that's adhered to. Um, you know, when people and politicians and leaders are starting to question that, then it all becomes this, this crisis of confidence, which I think is, is what we're in. So no matter what comes out of NASA, I think now moving forward, and Karen's alluded to some of the issues that, that over the past they've said, where they've contradicted themselves. And in fact, some cases, the prime minister had to come out the next day to correct them or to readjust them. I think now there are a number of people that are set in their ways with respect to vaccines. There are some that are just not going to get them, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter what incentives uh, that are happening. You know, in the U.S., you're hearing about all sorts of money incentives and tickets to games and all sorts of things that they're offering people to get vaccinated. But there are people that are just dead set. They're not going to get them. And there's others who are worried because they got a first dose of other AstraZeneca or something else. And they're totally confused, and we're all we're all getting anecdotal evidence from friends of ours who are saying, "I got my astrazeneca shot you know back in you know in in uh, March, and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it so you know I, I think the key thing is that this is hopeful news that that they're giving some approval to say you could get mixed doses because what we want ideally is for everybody to get two doses so that that the numbers you know the numbers continually go down but the numbers of vaccines go up enough so that we can get into stage two stage three by the end of summer i think that's the key thing is people just getting second doses
1: okay so we were talking about an election and uh, in terms of the rollout so at least in terms of first doses we have definitely caught up second uh, we will i think catch up, and I think people will make their own decisions about this kind of stuff. So, uh, Charles, how much is Doug Ford's re-election going to be based on the rollout here in Ontario?
5: Well, that election is about a year away. Uh, things happen throughout that time, and uh, people may reflect on their current state at that point, in which case we'll have their double vaccinations, the markets seem to be rebounding. Uh, Hopefully people are back to work. And they may give him a pass, saying, yeah, it was tough slogging, but we got through it. Um, So he may not have to wear all of it. He's certainly trying to deflect what he can.
1: At yeah, I mean, point. that seems to me, you know, at least if you believe this report, that he wants to get rid of people who are against uh, the lockdown because th- yeah. that's what he blames some of his worst decisions on. I mean, that, right. to me...
5: A bigger question, I guess, is these variants that are spreading. And part of the problem is that the rest of the world aren't having their double vaccinations, and there are depressed areas of the globe that are still spreading. Um, so... That his 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 blame to the feds as a result of international issues, and that's easy enough to do, but it's hard to control, and it's really not up to Canada necessarily as well. So um, he'll deflect. He'll do what he has to do, and he'll be Machiavellian in terms of his approach as he goes forward. And he's doing so right now. He's already starting uh, to move the chess players. Um, uh, he has to, I guess, to try to bolster his position thing that has faulted him is his indecisiveness. He makes a decision. He backs away. He's flip-flopped on a number of issues. Bad advice, possibly. Maybe he was shooting from the hip. The bureaucracy is running uh, ragged. They're trying to catch up on issues. Uh, The finances are an issue, right? They've got issues, both federally and provincially. Um, So the whole reboot has to happen. And depending upon how he stages this next go-around, um, he's the incumbent, he's got, he's got the visibility, he's on TV every day, he's in the news. If he can get himself back into the look that he had prior to this pandemic, just as a start, he may win people back. Um, but I'm, I don't know, I'm not sold, because I know that um, there is a degree of, uh, of incompetence that has come out, right? This lack of trust. The moment you lose that trust, It's hard to gain that back. He hasn't lost it completely, but if he does more, they're not going to forgive him.
1: Uh, you know, it, it's interesting, John. You know, when he was elected, the uh, the last thing you would have expected from him was indecisiveness, mm-hmm. and we're even seeing now now another report in the Star, and uh it, I find it interesting that the Star seems to be the source of this because of their politics, but uh, saying well, he's leaning against opening schools, and I get while well, he's why he's being cautious, because, you know, if there's a if there's another big spike because of a few weeks of school, he's going to wear it. But again, I mean, do you think this image of him as being indecisive is a problem?
6: Uh, I think anything that the star says about conservatives, uh, either federally or provincially, with a grain of salt, and a huge grain of salt, I say that, because I think there's always some nugget of maybe truth in it and i think a lot of it depending on who their sources are and of course they never reveal their sources and um so I, i don't i don't i don't know what to believe when it comes to the star but i would say this uh, there's nothing about Doug Ford that is that is indecisive. He is he is a businessman, a successful one. Uh he uh, likes to consult, he's a retail politician, which means by, by nature he loves to be able to sort of get feedback and, and draw from you know from the people that are his supporters. So there's a reason why Ford Nation survived. Uh, when he was in municipal politics and even when he, uh, provincial pol- uh, politics, there's a populism about him that, that he kind of taps into. So does he consult? Yes. Does he make decisions? Absolutely. I think it's more the tone and tenure uh, over the course of the last little while that's changed. I think this pandemic has changed him both in tone and tenure. And I think it's worked. And notwithstanding the, the, the challenges he's had over the last little a, a month or so, I think he's rebounding. And I think the next year is going to prove to be much more of a focused, uh, Premier that's going to sort of get us out of this pandemic and, and into a, a probably a brighter future uh where point he will win the election and both Steven del Duca and Andrew Harvath will be fighting for their jobs.
1: Now, Karen, I'd like to pivot a little bit to something we haven't talked about. Uh, I I grew up in Montreal, home of the winning team, I might add. (laughs) And it seems people are are really uh, not paying any attention to this bid by the Quebec Premier, Francois Legault, to uh, strengthen, in his view, French language laws in Quebec by changing the constitution recognizing Quebec as a nation. Trudeau is on side with that. I I mean, uh, I hate to date myself, but I remember 1995. I I remember 1980. Yeah, to be honest with me, I think it's shocking. I think
7: it's shocking that that they're doing this and just declaring it a little provincial matter. It's not a provincial matter. It's a national matter. And what's even more alarming is that Jason Kenney is all over it. They're supporting it because they know that once Quebec gets away with declaring their own nation status in the the name of protecting language, then they're going to be looking for loopholes to declare Alberta its independent nation. And I don't think that pretending it's anything other than it is, is very helpful to the national dialogue. I think what we're seeing is the beginning of a very difficult time in federal-provincial relations. And I think that, quite frankly, that the federal government is doing a complete disservice to the issue to pretend it's a non-issue. It is not a non-issue. This is as controversial as anything, as Meech Lake, as any other constitutional matter that we have dealt with, with respect to Quebec and the rest of Canada. This is, this is as potentially controversial. Charles?
5: They don't want to compromise Bill 101. They're taking steps with regards to notwithstanding clause and other provisions afforded them but it, I agree. I agree with Karen. This, this worries me. There's a double standard. I mean, no who kidding. is a Canadian citizen? Yeah. Right? I understand the issue of defining them as a nation. The NDP, the Conservatives, the Liberals are all going to support Quebec because of, you know, I think somebody, I think it was the province that said this, that we're in the business of winning seats or the seat winning business, I think they called it. That's all this is at the in regards to, to Quebec. I get their need to protect the French language. I agree I want to retain the culture and the language. I believe that diversity is important to us, and it equates who we are. But the Charter does not allow the notwithstanding clause to implicate your democratic rights, nor equality between men and women, and I would say between citizens. That's also a matter of equality for Canadians. So that's the part that worries me. I know when I put forward the cooperative capital market security regulator, Everybody was cooperating, except Quebec, because they saw it as an infringement on their sovereignty, so to speak, because they wanted to retain that control. So I gave them the option of saying, you don't have to. We cooperate. We'll continue as we are. They still challenge us in the courts, and they lost. This is so much bigger to the point that Karen has made, because it's a slippery slope that you start putting forward, and other provinces will play, or may use it to their advantage, too.
1: And, and that's and, just going to uh,
5: weaken the Federation.
1: May, may I say, I, I can't see any evidence that the French language is is threatened, certainly in Quebec.
5: Well, they're saying it said- is. They're saying it's falling. Yeah. And they're taking steps with regards to the colleges and universities, uh, limiting the, the number yes. of students that can cross over to the English language. You know, the rest of the world and Europe, they're actually embracing it to the extent they're trying to maintain their cultures, but they're trying to attract students and uh, and enable uh, those universities in other parts of the world to support the anglophone and the English community. But they all, I think, people all get the need to retain the culture and the language. Uh, they're saying it's falling in urban cities. I guess in Montreal, it's at 50%. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But in rural communities, it's at 98%. It's high, so that language is still there.
1: But, okay. just
7: quickly, but just quickly, on the, on the issue of nationhood, the federal government has made a commitment that the Aboriginal community would be recognized as a nation within the Canadian Constitution. Now, nobody knows what that means. But, again, it, 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 it could be very complicated, because they didn't know what that meant before they promised it to the Aboriginal community, and now we've got Quebec asserting itself. So, it, and, uh, it, and Karen, it, it, it's
5: a nation within a, a nation, nation? Because like the very very, Aboriginal community is huge in Quebec.
7: Right. And unceded lands? Like how is that going to get dealt with? So the whole thing is a potential flag. Oh.
1: Okay. Uh, we'll have to solve it at next week, maybe, <laughs> because we <laughs> are out of time. Thank you so much, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. We'll talk Thanks, soon.
5: Libby. All the best, everyone.
6: Thanks,
1: Libby. Bye-bye. Bye. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to delve into that important announcement about long-term care. And that is that all long-term care homes in the province have to have a COVID-19 vaccine policy in place by July 1st. What does it mean? How is it different? And uh, will it uh, induce more people, more workers to get vaccinated when we return?